Welcome back, healthy people, to more foolery on On Call with Dr. Randy. I hope everyone is having a great spring break or spring season, and your NCAA brackets are looking good. At the taping of this episode, my bracket is doing pretty well. Right now, I'm in third place of about a 40-person bracket, and I'll give you all an update next week. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's just a whole bunch of sports stuff, just some basketball stuff going on. But welcome back to another episode of On Call with Dr. Randy. On this week's HPI, aka Healthy People Information, I'm providing information on the side effects of the COVID vaccine. Yes, we're getting into side effects now. I always talk about other things, so we're going to get into some of the bad things we can say that, you know. In particular, I'm going to be discussing anaphylaxis due to the COVID vaccine. Anaphylaxis is a severe, potentially life-threatening allergic reaction. It can occur within seconds or minutes of exposure to something you're allergic to. This can include medications, food, and insects. Recently, I reviewed two articles from the Journal of the American Medical Association, also known as JAMA. One from February and one from March discussing anaphylaxis in relationship to the COVID vaccine. This week, I'm reviewing the February article. This clinical review reviewed anaphylaxis in relationship to the Pfizer vaccine after the first dose. So once again, this article reviewed anaphylaxis in relationship to the Pfizer vaccine after the first dose. Anaphylaxis was defined using something called the Brigton Collaboration Case Definition. Well, what is that? There needed to be a standard in which something was considered to truly be anaphylaxis. They didn't want to label something as anaphylaxis and not truly be anaphylaxis as something else. So according to the Brigton Collaboration, they define anaphylaxis as a clinical syndrome characterized by sudden onset and rapid progression of signs and symptoms and involving multiple organ systems. Why are you saying and like that? I don't know. I don't know. It's just coming out like that. Leave me alone in a voice. Organ systems usually included the respiratory system, cardiovascular system, and the integumentary system. The integumentary system is the skin, if you don't know what integumentary means. This definition also labeled different levels of certainty of anaphylaxis. I'll provide a link in the show description that you can look at to show the different levels of certainty regarding to anaphylaxis. It'll be too much to go in in a short time period. But essentially, it breaks items down into major and minor criteria. For example, major criteria will consist of a rash over your entire body, and a minor criteria will consist of just your skin itching. So you can click on the link that's provided in the show description to get more detail on levels of diagnostic certainty. The JAMA Clinical Medical article reviewed data from December 14th to December 23rd, 2020, in which approximately 1.8 million people received the first dosage of the Pfizer vaccine. Of that 1.8 million, only 21 cases reported to the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System met the criteria for anaphylaxis. The Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System is a national spontaneous reporting system for adverse events after immunization. 
So that's a reporting system that we report to nationally when someone has an adverse reaction from a vaccine. So if someone came to see me for a vaccine, let's just say they were getting a flu vaccine and their arm hurt for a day or two after receiving the vaccine, I'm not gonna report that to this monitoring system. This is only for adverse events. Now, if they got the flu vaccine and their arm fell off, I'm definitely gonna report that to the adverse uh, event reporting system. Of those 21 cases of anaphylaxis in 1.8 million people, that breaks down to 11.1 cases of anaphylaxis per million people after receiving the first dose of the Pfizer vaccine. The most common signs and symptoms of the anaphylaxis were hives, angioedema, which is the rapid swelling of the area beneath the skin, or your mucosa, which is the inside lining of your mouth. And the other most common symptom of anaphylaxis was sensation of throat closing. Average time of symptom onset was 13 minutes. 17 of those 21 people who had an anaphylactic reaction had a past medical history of allergy to either foods, insects, or drugs. Four out of those 17 had an allergy to sulfur drugs. Some of the food allergy symptoms included tropical fruit, nuts, and shellfish. Four of the 17 had those food allergies. So that means four out of the 1.8 million individuals who received the Pfizer vaccine during this December timeframe, after they received the first dose of the vaccine, had an anaphylactic reaction. This is a very, very small amount of people. Four people out of 1.8 million, that's very, very small. Therefore, it's hard to correlate a history of food allergies related to the Pfizer vaccine after receiving the first dose. None of the 21 individuals who had anaphylaxis died from the vaccine. Four of the 21 who had an allergic reaction were admitted to the hospital and they all were discharged home or recovered. So with all that said in this report, there were very few cases of anaphylaxis after receiving the first dose of the Pfizer COVID vaccine. Only 11.1 cases per 1 million people had anaphylaxis. I know you wouldn't want to be one of those individuals, but as I've discussed before, it's risk versus reward. I believe the reward is greater than the risk of harm when getting vaccinated for COVID-19. So that's it for this week's HPI. This week's episode is a continuation of last week's interview with Dr. Shaw. We'll continue our discussion on COVID-19 and discuss her article in the Huff Post entitled COVID-19 has devastated the black community. Here's why and what needs to change. And of course, we'll get into Randy's random questions at the end of the interview, which definitely has some unexpected answers. So let's get into the interview. The second part of the interview with Dr. Shaw. And I like some of the things that you mentioned in the article that you wrote in the in the post, the Huff Post. So one of the things you kind of mentioned in there was just minimalization of the symptoms that certain minorities present with with having COVID and how they're not basically addressed or mm-hmm. they're not looked at as the same as others. Like, what, yeah. what's your thoughts? Can you expand on, on that more? Yeah. There's been a lot of, I would say, initially conversation, but then actual good evidence that came out saying that when Black folks early on and currently still actually in the pandemic showed up to, let's say, the emergency room for 
evaluation. They thought maybe I was um, exposed to COVID-19. I want to get a test, you know, all these things that they were oftentimes turned away and thought, well, you're not sick enough or you don't meet the criteria or, you know, you don't have the right sniffle today or whatever it is and turned away. And all this is really because of underlying implicit bias, sometimes explicit bias and straight up racism. You know, at first it was kind of anecdotal. People would just tell these stories, but there's been a lot of tracking of this. How many white people in a particular area versus how many black people in a particular area, if they just turn up at the same testing place with similar symptoms, who's going to get tested? And in a lot of places, the white people get tested and the black people won't. Similar, if you show up into the emergency room, who's going to get admitted? And similar sort of a story. So then you would see these patterns of Black folks turning up when they're sicker to the emergency room and finally being admitted. And in some cases, they had already been to the ER once, twice, three times before they were finally admitted. And of course, once you show up and you're so sick, the um, likelihood that you're going to have a good outcome really decreases. And so a lot of people think that that has a lot to do with a lot of the mortality, increased mortality that we've seen in Black communities and Latinx communities and Indigenous communities. You know, all of it, unfortunately, is really rooted in a lot of racism. And I think Mm -hmm. people don't like to use the R word, right? Because, you know, I think people think, well, no, not me, not me. It couldn't be me. I couldn't be racist. (laughs) And it doesn't always have to be this, you know, straight up in your face kind of racism. It's just these little biases that you might have or the way that we have people ask the question or whatever it is. And so you you kind of really disregard a whole group of people and you can have these horrible impacts on their um, health. How can medicine improve on this as a whole? Or is medicine at all in trying to improve on this? Is this one of those things that it just is what it is and they're not trying to put no. more effort into changing? That's like that's why people like you and I are we're uh, I call us rabble rousers. We <laughs> stir up a little bit of trouble and mm-hmm. good trouble, right? Mm-hmm. And and bring attention to all these sorts of things. So I think you know, with a lot of stuff, people don't see what's really going on, and until you see it, and that's even with science. Let's bring it back to science and medicine and data. Until you start measuring a certain outcome, you have no clue that it's there. And so you know, until we start opening eyes to what is going on, nobody can really address it appropriately or stop it or mitigate it or any of that stuff. And so I think now we're doing a better job, generally speaking, as a medical community with opening everyone's eyes so that we can actually measure, hey, I can tell you, I I think this is going on. I've experienced this, but let's do research about it. Let's look and see if we give Black babies, Black doctors, do they do better? Hmm. And then if they do, why is that, right? Mm -hmm. So we've done that kind of measurement over time. We know that that kind of stuff happens. So why is that? And nobody can just say it's by chance because it's not. We all believe in science here, right? (laughs) It's not by Mm -hmm. chance. We have good data supporting that this is a phenomenon that's actually going on. And so now we just need to address it and figure out how to fix it. So, you know, I think we're doing better. We have a long way to go. And of course, there are always still people who don't believe it's going on, that there, mm-hmm. there could never be any racism. We're doctors. We're supposed to care for everyone. So how could there ever be any implicit bias or any of that stuff, right? But we know that's not true. Mm-hmm. We have data to, to, to um, tell us it's not true. In addition to our own personal experiences, I'm, you can probably name a bunch. I can name several <laughs> from myself in mm-hmm. my lifetime where I know that all this is alive and well. 
And so we just have to continue making good trouble and, and trying to take care of it. Right. And we also need some allies on our side, too. Like, we do. Unfortunately, the numbers are not going up tremendously as far as Black doctors um, overall. So we need some allies, some other people who are not of color to work with us and to help better treat the minority population as well. Yeah, we do. And I think, you know, I really do think that is happening. I think back to when I was in medical school and there really was a big, in my class at least, there was a pretty significant separation between kids of color and white kids. Mm -hmm. And now when I see med students, I feel like it just in general, people are much more accepting of each other. They work together more. And I'm talking about racial, ethnic backgrounds that are so different and they all kind of come together. And I hope, you know, maybe I'm being, um, maybe I have rose colored glasses on today. I don't know, but, (laughs) but I really do think that things are a little, you know, at least incrementally better than they were 10 years ago. I guess, yeah, 10 years ago now when I graduated medical school. So you know, we do need, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly that we do need more allies, but I think mm-hmm. that we have more than we did 10 years ago, for sure. We right. just have to continue getting, getting them. Definitely. So I think things are getting a little bit better. I saw some white people holding a Black Lives Matter sign in Atlanta <laughs> when I was driving underneath the highway. I was like, man, two years ago, I seen some people waving the Confederate flag over the highway. <laughs> like, man, we, we have come full circle now. Like things Full are getting circle. better. I'll we shall it. overcome. <laughs> <laughs> so there's still like a lot of in the minority community, a lot of mistrust with things that have happened in the past or not feeling like we've been listened to. And one of my guests that I had that's on the episode this week, she participated in the COVID vaccine trial. And so I thought that was very important to have a person of color come on and talk about her experience being part of a research trial for for the vaccine. So in your opinion, kind of what kind of stops people from participating, more specifically people of color, for participating in these trials when we know we need the data for how it affects us? Yeah, yeah. It's complicated. And I think a lot of it has to do with history. Uh, We think about Tuskegee, we think about Henrietta Lacks, we think about so many horrible things that have happened to Black people across centuries. The way that we've been experimented on the whole, basically all of OBGYN, all of the major advances early on were done on enslaved Black women, right? Mm -hmm. And um, all this horrible stuff. And so there is a reason uh, why Black people, generally speaking, might be a little bit more distrustful of medicine in general and of the biomedical research enterprise. But that's just one piece of the story. I've written in, um, in that Huffington Post piece, actually, and in other places, written that, you know, there's a lot of data out there, too, that the entire research enterprise has an issue with bias and with mm-hmm. discrimination and with inadequately recruiting people of color and Black people to be in their clinical trials. So in some instances, it's that we don't feel comfortable. When I say we, I mean Black people, we don't feel comfortable with what's going on. But in a lot of instances, it's that we're just not asked to be involved. We are intentionally excluded from certain things. And so we have to look at that seriously, too, because I think, unfortunately, when you just say that the reason Black people don't do research is because of mistrust, that's kind of putting the blame on us. 
Mm-hmm. And without having the whole system, number one, recognize that there is a reason to mistrust. And number mm-hmm. two, recognize that they are also complicit in excluding us from um, participation. So, you know, historically, um, if you look at cancer trials, if you look at heart disease trials, if you look at all these things that actually impact Black people more, we are still underrepresented in research. Um, With COVID-19, we're underrepresented, and I'm saying that with comparison to our overall uh, population levels, we're underrepresented. But they did a decent job, given all that, with recruiting people into most of the COVID-19 studies, vaccine studies. You know, I think to combat mistrust, you have to give people a reason to trust you. (laughs) So, Uh you know, number one, recognizing that there's a reason that we don't trust you and instead of just saying Black people don't trust, right? Uh So that's the first thing. And then number two, really, there's evidence that if you try to recruit people where they are in a way that they, number one, can understand, number two, can believe, and then number three can, can kind of follow through on, then you're going to do better. And that's not just Black people, that's kind of everybody. Mm-hmm. And so for this, I think there was a lot of messaging that went out specifically to Black and Brown communities about the importance of participation in these particular trials that helped boost those numbers a little bit. Now, they didn't boost them all the way where they should be, but they boosted them way more than Black people are in most clinical trials. And so I was happy about that. And again, it took a lot of loud talking and... <laughs> And uh, all that from people like, you know, just other doctors and researchers and everyone else who's, who are just like, this is unacceptable if we're not, we're not included here. It doesn't make any kind of sense, especially since we are so, so disproportionately impacted with this virus. I like the things that you said about building trust. Mm-hmm. Also sounds like relationship stuff right there. Can I trust that when you say <laughs> you out there with your boys, that you out there with your boys and not running around? Can I trust you, brother? Can I trust you? (laughs) So just to kind of go back and talk about some of the vaccines, what are your initial thoughts on the first two that came out, the Pfizer and the Moderna, and the new one that's out in the market, the Johnson & Johnson, the uh, good old one-shot vaccine? Yeah, I think they're all good vaccines. I um, I got vaccinated. I got the Pfizer vaccine and mm-hmm. I got that one because that's what was offered to me at the time and I wanted to get vaccinated. So I think Pfizer and Moderna are both very similar. They're very good. They both have 94 to 95% vaccine efficacy. They have good safety profiles. People have been worried about the kind of allergy issue with it. Uh-huh. And that happens, but it's very, very rare. So we're talking for severe allergic reactions for the Pfizer vaccine, five reactions out of a million shots. Like it's super rare. And then for Moderna, it's like two um, per a million shots. So these things are not common. And I always remind people that you can have an allergic reaction to any medication you take, to any other vaccine you take, to breathing something in the air, like all all this stuff can cause an allergic reaction. So this is not something that I, you know, as an allergy doctor, worry so, so much about at all. The Johnson Johnson vaccine, I think is good too. And I feel bad for it because I think people are kind of poo-pooing it a little bit because <laughs> its vaccine efficacy is not as high as the Pfizer Moderna one. So here in the U.S., it's like 72% was the vaccine efficacy and it was about 60, um, 66 or 67% across all the study sites. But it's still really good. Most vaccines are not 60% effective. And I don't think people realize that. 
And so anything for the FDA, what their goal was beforehand, they said they would consider approving vaccines if they were 50% effective. Hmm. That was the goal. And so we just got, in Louisiana, we call it, in New Orleans, really, we call it lanyap. We just got a little something extra. That's what we got with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Like that was, they knocked that out of the park. Nobody expected to have that kind of vaccine efficacy. And unfortunately, Johnson and Johnson came after that. And so it mm. seems like it's not good, but it is really, really good too. In addition to the, you know, it's one shot, like you mentioned, it has a really good safety profile too. I think all three are very, very good and they have more coming, you know, down the, down the line. So we have to see the data as it comes for the other vaccines, but hopefully those will be good too. Okay. So yeah, that Johnson and Johnson, unfortunately, the efficacy came out lower than the other ones. It's like going from... Dr. Pepper to just pepper. Like, <laughs> <laughs> taking it down. Mr. Pib, like he took right, it down. Mr. Like, Pib. Yep. <laughs> It'll help you out a little bit and quench your thirst, but it's not the same as like getting Dr. It's not pepper. Not the same, but it's still good. It still tastes good, right? Mm-hmm. right Mr. Pib right. is still pretty good. <laughs> well, of course, some of the people listening are going to ask, like, well, what were those allergic reactions that happened with those five in a million people? Have they? release that um, yet mm-hmm. as of what, what has happened to those individuals? Yeah. So the CDC is doing a really good job of providing details on those types of reactions. So they have really good tracking systems. If any of you have gotten vaccinated, and I don't know if you've gotten vaccinated, Dr. Randy, yeah, but um, you know, the V-Safe system, which is the CDC is kind of tracking. It's like an app. Kind of, they send you a text message and then you put in what your symptoms are, if you have them, if you don't, how you're feeling. And they keep sending it to you periodically after you've gotten vaccinated. If you indicate that something bad has happened, the CDC will call you and go through your case and see what's happening. The other thing is your doctor can submit on your behalf a report to the CDC saying, hey, my patient had a swelling or had a rash or whatever it is. And uh, they go through all those cases. So For the severe allergic reactions, we call those anaphylaxis. And, you know, those patients, there were not that many of them, but they went through all the cases. They talked to those patients. They talked to their doctors. Most of them required something called an epinephrine shot or an EpiPen shot. All of them recovered. None of them died. And that's really the story. And so the way that I kind of describe it is I take care of kids who have peanut allergies, right? Mm -hmm. And if they accidentally eat a peanut, most of them are going to have a severe allergic reaction and they're going to have to use their EpiPen. After they use their EpiPen, they're going to have to go to the emergency room. They're going to be monitored. They're going to do fine and they're going to go home. And that is a similar sort of a thing, except peanut allergy is like super common, right? It like happens a whole, whole lot to a whole lot of people all throughout the year versus this happens to five out of a million people. Five, I'm going to say it again, five out of one million people. And we know, based on the information we have, that people who have underlying severe allergies to injectables and to other uh, vaccines or to the ingredients in these vaccines are the ones who seem to be at highest risk. So, you know, there's there's a, a risk there, there's a potential there, but the risk is not very high at all. And I would argue that the risk of getting COVID-19 and having a bad outcome is much higher than any potential allergic reaction. Right. That's what I kind of preach to my patients as well. Risk versus reward. And I feel like mm-hmm. the reward is greater than the risk in getting this vaccine rather than actually getting COVID. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Agree. Yeah. 
What's your opinion as far as people who are still on the fence because this vac- these vaccines have come out so fast? Normally, we know research kind of takes a couple of years, and we've gotten a vaccine within a year. Yeah. First, I, I try to tell people for the mRNA, we'll start with those, the mRNA vaccines, which are the Pfizer-Moderna vaccines. The studies on that type of vaccine has been going on for like 30 years. Mm -hmm. They've been studying mRNA technology for vaccines and for medicines for 30 whole years. They've, over 30 years, have really perfected it almost. They've made it better. They've made it so that the vaccines are more stable, so that people don't have as many kind of side effects from it. And when I say that, I mean like fevers, muscle aches, swelling, that kind of stuff, where it's injected. And in 2020, when this virus came to be and was here in the United States, it was, I think, the best thing that this technology had already been studied for 30 whole years, and they could just modify it just a little bit to fit this particular virus um, and quickly get into clinical trials with humans. So in that sense, it's not new. It's not too fast. The other thing I say is it's 2021. We should have ways to do things at a certain speed now versus the way that we did it in the 1980s. And nobody is making vaccines the same way that we did um, when we were kids. So that's one thing. For the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, that too has been studied for a very long time. And in fact, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, the technology used to make it has been used in other vaccines, for instance, one for Ebola. It's just not been used here in the United States. And that's because, again, we don't have Ebola in the United States, really. So all these things, they're not new. They've been well studied over a long time by a lot of smart, smart people who dedicate their lives to studying these particular types of vaccine technologies. And because of all that hard work for so long, when this novel coronavirus came along, they were able to just modify what they've been doing to fit this particular virus. And that's really the future of vaccines going forward is because there are going to be other new viruses, new bacteria that we need to figure out ways to fight. And um, the idea is that we have technologies that can just be modified quickly and easily, that we know are safe, that we know are effective, then we can kind of move faster so so many people don't have to get sick. Right. So I'm assuming there's someone somewhere who's working on the next thing to treat the next pandemic. We don't know what that is, but there's somebody working behind the scenes and it's ready to go at a moment's notice. Yep, exactly. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why we have to really invest in science, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just that we're starting from scratch when something like this happens. And so thankfully, we didn't have to start from scratch this time. All right. How do we encourage more people to go, specifically people of color, to go into science? Not specifically, it can't be medicine. Of course, we would love you (laughs) to go into medicine. But also, we need more engineers as well, too, Mm -hmm. to develop our technology. What are some ways that we can kind of encourage the youth? Yeah, I think, you know, just exposing everybody to these different aspects. So like, I think when I think about why I was interested in allergy and immunology, it was literally because I would see my doctors do doing all this crazy stuff to try to take care of me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why, you know, how does this work? And why, you know, I would ask those questions. Had I not been exposed to any of that stuff, I would never even realize what it was about at a surface level and then be able to learn about it at a deeper level later on. So I think really just exposing people to 
engineering and technology and mathematics and science and medicine and all of that and computers and everything else, just that little exposure is going to spark something Mm -hmm. in that kid's brain to say, oh, that's kind of cool. Maybe I want to learn more about it. And then giving people the the, uh, support to go into that. You know, in medicine, we have a real problem with the cost of medical education and really tell me about it. it. (laughs) Really (laughs) discouraging people from going into medicine because you just really can gather so much debt. And so if we had ways to really make sure that promising young people don't have to worry so much about about debt for school, I think that would be another wonderful thing. And I hope, I hope, hope, hope that our government somehow starts to tackle that in the next um, few years. Come on, loan forgiveness. Help a brother out. (laughs) Help me out, man. I'm going to put my money back in the economy, but I need you to help me out some. So as we wrap up, last thing, what do we need to do going forward? Everybody's starting to get their, well, not everybody, but a lot of people are starting to get their vaccines now. Some of the numbers are starting to come down. Shout out to my state of Texas, just going crazy and is going to open up everything back to normal. Some other states too, but of course we were the first. Shout out to Texas. We do everything <laughs> bigger and better. Not necessarily in a positive way all the time. But I know it's a lot of people trying to get back to some sense of normalcy. They want to get back to traveling, going to Jamaica, trying to get ready for carnival, all kind of things. Like, So what do we need to do as a nation going forward so we can get back to some kind of normalcy? Yeah, I think number one, hold tight. Like, y'all, please don't take your masks off and just start going out and about at 100% capacity. Texas does not make any kind of sense. Arkansas is actually about to do the same thing. Mississippi is doing the same thing. Louisiana, shout out, Louisiana is not doing that. Um, and I know, I know. <laughs> we're, we're like in the middle of, of a sea of madness. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> but really, honestly, one of the big things I like, one way I like to think about the pandemic is we, of course, are all worried about ourselves, right? Our individual selves and making sure we're safe and all that stuff worried about our families, we're worried about our friends, but the only way we get through all this stuff is worrying about the community at large. And that is not just the people in your immediate community, that is people kind of in faraway places too. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm doing here is going to impact what you do in Texas and in Georgia and in New York and all this stuff. And we all need to be on one accord, Mm -hmm. as my pastor would say, to, Mm -hmm. to get through this, right? And it can't be that, oh, I'm just going to do my own thing. That's not how it works at all. And we've learned over the past year, that's clearly not how it works at all. And so we just have to sit tight a little bit longer together, decide we're going to still wear a mask. We're not going to go to places that are um, not socially distancing, that are at 100% capacity and all that until we know that it is truly safe. And the point when it will be truly safe is when we reach herd immunity. We're nowhere near that whatsoever right now. We won't be until we get more people vaccinated. Hopefully, we'll get more people vaccinated, the majority of the population vaccinated by summertime. And then that means that maybe in the fall, we can kind of start getting back to normal. But what we don't want to see is doing stuff too fast, and then we end up right back where we were, which we've done already like three or four times. So... (laughs) 
We just need to sit tight and, and get with the program and stop being so, so, so we're all so self-centered. Oh my gosh. I'm like, y'all think we got to think about everybody else. Right. Mm -hmm. And just remember that you're your neighbor's keeper for real. And that's the only way we we get back to any sense of normalcy is when we all decide that we're each other's keepers. Mm -hmm. I'll stop there. <laughs> and, and for somebody who doesn't know what's herd immunity, I don't want them yeah. thinking it, that we have to go and vaccinate cows and other things that are in herds. Like, yeah. So herd immunity is basically when you have enough people in a population who are immune to a particular virus, so like COVID-19, where that virus can no longer spread um, effectively across that community. So we have herd immunity right now for so many different viruses that used to, and bacteria and all that, germs, that used to really make people sick, like measles, like smallpox, like polio, like chickenpox. So many of those things that people just don't get sick from, they don't die from. And that's literally because we have vaccines that fight them. And we have this level of protection across communities called herd immunity that um, keeps all those things at bay. And right now, COVID-19, we don't have, we only have like 10, 11% of the population that is vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, for herd immunity, you need about, we think probably 70 to 80% of the population vaccinated. So we have a ways to go, but we can make it there. And really the only way to do it is together. We all have to decide together, this is what we're going to do. We're going to keep each other safe. We're going to hold tight until we're at that point. And then when we're at that point, we slowly start to reopen things, slowly start to think about taking our masks off and kind of see what happens. Because we don't want to go back to 2020. That was Man, terrible. please don't take me back. Please don't take me back <laughs> at all. No, no, no. Having bad flashbacks. Bad flashbacks. Mm -hmm. but thanks for sitting down and talking with me. Do you want to share any of your social media stuff where people can find good information that you're putting out? Y'all make sure y'all follow her because she puts some real good information out on there. Thank you. So yeah, you can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Akila Jefferson MD. It's A-K-I-L-A-H-J-E-F-F-E-R-S-O-N-M-D. And then also you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Akila J. Okay, good. No Black Planet account? <laughs> oh, probably an old one somewhere. Who knows? <laughs> And what's the other one? MySpace, oh, all yeah. that stuff. Oh, yeah. Back in the day, back in the day. <laughs> Man, Salon just trying to bring back Black Planet too. So that'll be interesting. Really? Yeah, really, mm. really. Yeah. I'm not signing up. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So you ready for Dr. Randy's random questions? Sure. Okay. You look so excited and so nervous at the same time, period. <laughs> so I got a nice little deck of cards over here with a whole bunch of random questions on there that I just kind of pull from. And we'll see what kind of random questions that it gives us and what kind of random responses I will get from you. All right. I'm loving these questions it's given me. So yeah. you're from the South. You're from Louisiana, of course. Do you have any superstitions? A lot of people from the South, I know we have different superstitions as far as like, don't split the pole, don't touch a broom, all kind of stuff like that. Do you have any personal superstitions? I do. Do not put your purse on the ground because mm -hmm. you will lose all your money. <laughs> 
That's the main one. <laughs> <laughs> That's the main one. So you make sure to keep it on the couch or keep it on a keep seat somewhere. Somewhere high up, high up, because you want to have you want to have your money in there. I think I don't know if my mom told me that or my grandma, somebody, but uh-huh. never put your purse on the ground. <laughs> okay. Sounds like a good Louisiana superstition right there. So I have just had a coma. I've woken up. You tell me it's my birthday. I don't know what a birthday is. You're acting like it's very special and it's something I should be excited about. If you had to explain to me what is the importance of a birthday, what would you say that is? It's a hard question. Mm -hmm. Let's see. I think I would probably just make up and say, because why do we celebrate birthdays? It's actually a good philosophical question, uh-huh. but <laughs> but maybe there's something special. There must be something special about 365 days. So one day doesn't count. 10 days doesn't count. But uh-huh. when you get to 365, that's when you're like, ding, ding, ding. This uh-huh. is the big day. Now, why that is, this is a horrible answer that I'm <laughs> giving you because I don't know, but I, I really don't have a good answer for it, but Three, because 365 is special. So when you make it, each time you do 365, you mm-hmm. have to have a party. That's what I would tell you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you wouldn't know any better because you're in a coma. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, I don't even remember. You'd be like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you could tell me the next day that it's my birthday and I'm still confused. <laughs> what is the dumbest way that you've been injured? Tripping I've, over something, riding I've a tripped bike. over fall. many things. <laughs> so when I, I don't know how, I was maybe like eight or nine. My mom told me not to ride a bike, my bike in the street. She told me just to ride on the sidewalk. And of course I didn't listen. <laughs> and as soon, I mean, as soon as I got in the street, I fell and scraped up my whole leg, mm-hmm. whole thing. And had to come in. I was like crying. <laughs> She's like, what happened? I'm like, uh, I fell and tripped. She didn't believe me, of course, but that was probably the stupidest way. And I still have a scar on my leg to this day from when I went into the street when my mom told me not to ride a bike. Oh, man, we all got these uh, scars from riding bikes. I got a bad one on my on my elbow from when I fell in middle school. And of course, I cried, too. <laughs> yeah, got a bad infection. But luckily, my mom took me to the emergency room. And so last question, if you had to hang out with any fictitious character from a TV show or a movie for an entire day, who would that character be? It can be an animation. It can be somebody real. Like if you wanted to hang out with like, let's just say one of the characters that Viola Davis has played. If you want to hang out with Will Smith from I Am Legend for for a day, who, who would you pick? I think I would pick, I'm going to do a cartoon. One of my favorite animated movies growing up was The Little Mermaid. Okay. I'm going to pick Ariel because here's my reason why. It's because, and I would want to do it like if she could still be in the sea, because I think it would be cool if I could like live under the sea mm-hmm. with all the sea creatures and stuff for like a day and then come back to, to you know, to land. So okay. that's, I think that's my choice. Except she was so sad in the sea, so I don't know if she would be fun, but, you know. <laughs> Who was that? Ariel and Flounder? The mm-hmm. fish that you was with? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you swim? 
I can swim. Okay. Yeah. Good job. So I, w- I, w- I would survive. I would. I just can't breathe underwater. So we'd have to figure that out. Okay. So but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we have to get you some scuba diving gear so you can. <laughs> Something. I bet you. I bet when you woke up this morning, you didn't think you'd be talking about Ariel later in the day. <laughs> Not <laughs> at all. See, that's why it's Randy's random questions. Thank you for sitting down and talking to me and exposing some of the random thoughts that go on in your head about who you want to hang out with. Thank you. We're going to make sure to bring you back one day to talk about allergy stuff so people can know how to control their allergies the best and if they do or don't need to go see an allergist in the future. For sure. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Well, that wraps up part two of the interview with Dr. Shaw. You can find a link to her HuffPost article in the show description, as well as a link to her social media accounts. When she's not under the sea with Ariel, she is putting out some great content. And just a quick review of the content I discussed earlier in the HPI, in regards to the Pfizer vaccine, after the first dose, the reported cases of anaphylaxis from mid-December was 11.1 cases per 1 million individuals. Most individuals had some history of food, drug, or insect allergy. Those with a history of sulfur drugs were the most common in the drug category. Mind you, this was only four of the 21 individuals who had an anaphylactic reaction. And that was four out of the 1.8 million people who received the first dose in that window. The most common symptoms were hives, angioedema, rash, and sense of throat closing. Once again, this is only most common symptoms for anaphylaxis. This is not the most common symptoms overall. Most common symptoms overall would include things such as fatigue, arm pain, and headache, those type of symptoms. Well, Dr. Randy, I don't want to get any of those symptoms. I totally agree. I hope that you don't get any of those symptoms either. So let's say a prayer that you don't. Close your eyes. Lord, please bless, insert name, when he or she goes to get the COVID vaccine. Wait, wait, wait. If you're you're driving, open your eyes. Open your eyes. Open your eyes. Woo. I need you to pray with your eyes open and hands at 10 and 2. Don't close your eyes if you're driving. That was a close one. Jesus, take the wheel. But seriously, if you do get the vaccine, I pray that you get minimal side effects and symptoms from the vaccine. My symptoms were minimal in nature after my second dose. They included fatigue, headache, and one enlarged lymph node that lasted for a week. The enlarged lymph node was in my neck and was on the same side as where I got my vaccine. I only noticed the enlarged lymph node after I was scratching my neck and I felt something in my neck. Oh, you dirty. You scratching and stuff? You need to take a bath. Shut up, inner voice. Get out of here. Next week, I'll discuss the other and most recent article I read that reviewed anaphylaxis with both Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine from mid-December to mid-January. So an additional vaccine and more individuals to have data on for possible side effects in relationship to anaphylaxis. So I'll talk about that on next week's episode. Please rate, like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. Leave a comment if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to my friend Richard for the positive words of encouragement. He's one of those keep it real friends who's always telling you what he does and doesn't like, even though you don't ask him. 
but we all know somebody like that and need those type of individuals in our lives. So see y'all again next week. As always, stay healthy physically and mentally.